getting to meet people who pick out the paper for your book and decide on the binding. And so all of those people had their hands on my book at some point, and it was so wonderful to be able to say thank you to them. You're listening to The Taste Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Rodbard. Today on the show, I have a really cool conversation with Andrew Nguyen, the author of many popular cookbooks, including Vietnamese Food Any Day, The Pho Cookbook, The Banh Mi Handbook, and Asian Tofu. Andrea is somebody I've had the pleasure of getting to know over the years, and this conversation dives into her incredible history as a cookbook author and food educator. We hear about the story behind her first book, Into the Vietnamese Kitchen, with then-indie publisher Ten Speed Press. We also hear Andrea's candid thoughts on the loneliness of cookbook writing and how her thirst for community inspired her excellent new podcast, Everything Cookbooks. It's a really amazing conversation with Andrea. Also in the show, we catch up with Bianca Cruz. Bianca is an editorial assistant at Clarkson Potter and also attending culinary school. I wanted to have Bianca on to talk about the ins and outs of her culinary education and what it's like to take an exam in culinary school. Man, I was sweating it out just hearing about what it's like, the chicken she had to prepare under pressure. I really loved catching up with Bianca. Andrew Nguyen, welcome to the Taste Podcast. Thank you, Matt. Thanks for inviting me today. I've wanted to talk to you for years on the Taste Podcast, and we're finally catching up. Um, you know, I've been a huge fan of your writing since before I started writing cookbooks myself. Um, so it's just wonderful to, 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 you know, get to know you over the years, somebody who I've respected so much. Well... We can talk forever, Matt, and uh, likewise for the Admiration yeah. Club. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's wonderful, and and I have to you know ask you from the jump. I, I want to know, like, your book career um, has been really fun to watch, but I have to ask right away. You've really, I feel like, have really mastered. It's like you've written a master course on the sim- single subject cookbook. Um, so I wanted to ask you, you know, really what excites you most about the format of a single subject? You know, you've done Asian dumplings, Asian tofu, the banh mi cookbook, the pho cookbook. So what excites you about the single topic format versus maybe a little bit larger slash diverse cookbook? Well, um, so the survey cookbook is a great cookbook because you in that format, you can take a broad swath you know, at a cuisine or something like that. But once that you go single subject, like with tofu or dumplings or banh mi or pho, it is not so much a passion, but it's the obsession. <laughs> it is, you, right. know, <laughs> you know, it's like thinking about, my God, how do I take one sole ingredient or one dish um, and really provide cooks with some kind of storytelling that helps them to understand the arc of of this of something in cuisine or something in culture but through the lens of say soybeans and tofu mm-hmm, mm-hmm. or dumplings um and frankly when I got to follow I was like I had nothing to say <laughs> I thought wow I really said that's it. A, that you you had nothing to say right oh wow I thought I've written pho. I've written about it in my first cookbook into the Vietnamese kitchen and I thought I have nothing to say aside from it's chicken or beef but um, the editors at 10 Speed Press, whom I've worked with for a long time, said, you have something to say. Just go home and think about it. <laughs> that was the prompt. It was like, you have voice. You know more about pho than most American cookbook authors. Go back and come back with an idea. <laughs> exactly. They're like, go on, simmer. And so <laughs> they know me well enough. To send me with that kind of prompt so that I would go home and think about it. And then I realized that pho was much, much more than what I thought it was and what a lot of people thought it was. And so through pho, I was able to tell the history of modern Vietnam 
including colonialization, including the Vietnam War, including the diaspora, and as yeah. well as the evolution of food in the United States and elsewhere um, in terms of fusing different um, ideas and different cuisines. So I, that was my mojo. Let's talk about um, when you when you join when you you know moved to the United States um, in 1975. So I want to just I've always wanted to ask you this. I feel like I, I haven't. You know what was Vietnamese food like in 1975 in America? Barely existed. There were Vietnamese restaurants. Um, the first Vietnamese restaurants in the United States, I think, opened in the 60s. I think there was one in New York, actually. And um, so Vietnamese refugees arriving here, it was like tabla rasa for Vietnamese food. And, yeah. you know, suddenly you had tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people um, coming to the United States. And we started nearly from scratch, but Vietnamese food is so influenced by Chinese and South Asian, Southeast Asian, as well as French ideas, and a certain, to a certain extent, um, American uh, influence too um, from the war. And so people are pretty scrappy. They looked around and they're like, "Oh yeah, I can make bun mi. It's a sandwich." Yeah, I mean, I feel the bun mi um, had to have been one of the original dishes that kind of crossed over to a non-Vietnamese audience. Um, and I feel like the banh mi has been embraced by many in America. But I'd like to get back to that 75 question. You know, the banh mi in 1975, was it the same banh mi we have now or was it, a, was it different? The banh mi in 1975, to tell you the truth, I barely remembered it because, yeah. you know, the bread wasn't there the the pervasiveness of it wasn't there because if you wanted Vietnamese food, you basically you, you know you cooked it at home. There were no little Saigon enclaves, and people would um, be shopping in Chinatowns, like my family did. We would drive to L.A. Chinatown from our home in San Clemente in Southern California, and it was like a three-hour round trip. Or we would shop at a regular American supermarket and mine the grocery aisles to figure out what we could make. We're working on a story about Le Choy, well, Kathy Irway. By the time this comes out, it'll be it'll be published. But we talk about the history of that that brand and and how you know it entered um, you know the American grocery store um, literally a hundred years ago. It's a hundred year old brand. Was that a was that a was that a brand that you that you shopped when you were young? Oh yeah, you know my mother still has small Le Choy bottles from the mid to late 70s that she recycles by refilling it with um, nook mam fish sauce or maji um, seasoning sauce. And she keeps it on her dining table. And she said to me, oh, do you want one? Because as dispensers, they're great. They, <laughs> they dribble yeah. out just the right amount. So we definitely were into Le Choy. And um, when my uh, recent book came out, um, Vietnamese Food Any Day, Someone said to me, oh, Le Choy soy sauce. It's the best soy sauce around. And yeah. I think that's like a tagline from, or, or soy sauce that Americans love the most or something. It's a tagline from the company itself. Something like that. But as you know, it's not real soy sauce. No. It's not really brewed. You know, it's its, its own, it has a, it's, a, it's a complex, um, you know, enzyme or amino acid. Right. It's not made with soy, Right. No, it's not. <laughs> right. <laughs> I think yeah. there was a Mark Bittman cookbook that said that soy sauce is not is made with wheat or something like that. It was really kind of a strange definition of soy sauce. But there are those kinds of soy sauces out there. Yeah, um, I'm, I'll link to that 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 article in the show notes. Um, and it's interesting that we got to talk about that in the grocery store in 1975. Um, I want to move on and talk about uh, your first initial expression of food writing. Like, what is your first memory of, of writing about food? I would have to say, well, my dad recently passed and um, he kept this black leather attache case that he actually brought with him um, from Vietnam. And we had two pieces of luggage and one 
was this kind of medicine bag thing. And then the other one was the attache case. And it was more like a a uh, lawyer's briefcase. It had like these files and stuff in it. And after he passed, my mom and the rest of our family went through this this case and found that he had kept records of all of our school achievements and filed them. Like he had a dossier on each <laughs> and every one of us. And so I got to like look back at, you know, stories and things that I had written in the past and things that he'd actually like helped me with. Me with. And, you know, like there was this little story that I'd written called like the camera killer or something. And there was a little bit of food in there. And um, it was like this project that he helped me with. And I won like first prize and he was so like proud of me. Mm-hmm. But I was you know, in elementary school then. Um, but the mm-hmm. first expression of food that I was actually paid for um, was a restaurant review that I wrote for a um, publication called the Korean American Journal in L.A. It was in the 90s, and and the owner and I met at USC, the University of Southern California, where I was working. And he said, oh, you want to do restaurant reviews? It seemed to like food. You know, there's this guy, Jonathan wow. Gold, in L.A., and, well, I think that, you know, we Asians can say something about Asian food, too. And I was like, wow. okay. What a, mo- what, a, what, a, what a power move. What, a, what an amazing sentiment, you know, from the 90s. I love that. Yeah, so and so I, I was like this very, very brief brief career as a restaurant reviewer. And I, re- I reviewed a, um, a Japanese restaurant that served Japanese and Chinese food for a Korean American yeah. <laughs> publication. In Korea, in Koreatown, LA? Yeah. Um, did you like it? Do you remember? Uh, was it a positive review? It was, it was pretty good. It was, you know, I didn't know any better, Matt, you know, <laughs> I know. I mean, <laughs> yeah, you were just getting your footing. I love that story. I love that memory. And I want to know, um, you, you eventually met, uh, Phil Wood, who, who is the former owner of 10 speed press. And I, I just, we've never talked about Phil Wood on the taste podcast. And I'd love to hear your thoughts and, or just your memory of meeting Phil Wood and how you ended up at 10 speed where you still are today. If anybody is interested in book publishing, especially indie publishing, Phil Wood is someone that you need to know because he was totally rogue, totally indie. The man, when you saw him, he had, you know, this beard. He always wore a straw hat. He always wore matching Hawaiian print pajama outfits. (gasps) Pajamas to the office. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like you're Hugh breathless. Style. <laughs> I mean, that's like Hugh I mean, Hefner, you, I'm thinking. <laughs> you're a wordless man. Yes. Six-centric man. Wow. Yeah. And he drove around in this, um, I think it was a Cadillac or something. And it just like sailed around the streets of San Francisco, up and down the hills. And I got to meet him through an unusual man who pretty much cooked everything um, in his fireplace using... 17th or 18th century European implements. Oh my goodness, what a great story. In wow, Santa that's Cruz. That's for another day hearing yeah. that guy. And um, he had published William Rubel's um, uh, Fireplace Cookbook. And William introduced me to Phil. And Phil said, oh, well, I've been very interested in Vietnamese food through the slanted door, and I would, you know, happily publish your cookbook. And I said, well, really? (laughs) Doesn't it require, like, that someone review a book proposal and stuff like that? And um, so I submitted a book proposal that I had, frankly, lingering for a very long time. And 10 Speed Press um, just swooped on it. And... (laughs) It started there, but I was no overnight success story, you know? Well, I mean, no one is really. And I got to say your career with with 10 Speed, which spans it being an indie, it being purchased by Penguin Random House, where it is today. Um, the books that Phil Wood acquired early and just the vision he had. I mean, it's just so interesting that he had this instinct to offer you on the spot. A book deal. That was kind of the way he rolled, right? Yeah, he just had his own, he was in his own orbit, but he was smart. Because one day I said to him, I asked him, so Phil, 
how do you pick and choose what to publish? And he leaned in and he said, you only have to be right 51% of the time. <laughs> that's his odds. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> that That's that, you know, that that's an interesting metric. I mean, certainly there are hits and there, there are not hits in book publishing and cookbook publishing. And we'll talk about your, your new podcast, everything cookbooks, which covers the world of cookbooks, but you only have to be right 51% of the time. What did, how did you translate? Like, how did you, uh, interpret that? I learned from that, that a publisher has a portfolio of works that they're going to put together. And some things people will publish because they want to. Those are, you know, the passion projects. And they may not earn as much money as others, but you want them to be part of your entire um, catalog. And others, you, you know, know are going to be money makers. And mm-hmm. he hit on some amazing works like What Color Is Your Parachute, um, Moosewood, you know, and so he was always looking for ideas and titles that had been overlooked or just ahead of the curve. And he lost some and he won some. And yeah. and he also was, you know, he collected things. He um, collected matching pajama outfits and straw hats. <laughs> he must have, like, see, walking into his closet to see those straw hats must have been a real sight. It's a real, yes. real. Yes. And he had like a, a love of um, Asian art and antiques. And so the original 10 speed building um, had this conference room with what seemed to me like a 50-foot-long dark wood conference table with matching chairs. And me, as a first-time author on the West Coast, I just thought, that's just how it is. I had no exposure to East Coast publishing. I thought, oh, everybody gets to walk into a publishing house and walk around. And and if you want (laughs) to pick up some books, you know, you can pay for it. You call and give them your credit card number and then drive up to the warehouse and see the guys and they load the mm-hmm. ca- your car up with books and then you drive home. Isn't that what it's all about? Yeah, not quite, but still, uh, I'd like to, I mean, not quite. I mean, it's changed a lot, but I, I wanted to actually ask you about when your first book came out in 2006, Into the Vietnamese Kitchen, you actually went to the office of 10 Speed that you're, you're speaking of and you meet, you prepared a meal f- for the staff, which I think is so cool and so you. And it's just such a warm gesture to actually g- provide your publisher with some food, like a warm meal, right? Yeah. <laughs> so talk about that a little bit. That 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 sounds like that that meal that you prepared. Well, um, Aaron Weiner, who was my editor on that first book, um, invited me. And he said, we do this with some authors, and I think that this would be a great way for you to meet everyone. And I thought, all right, well, how many people are going to be there? And he said, about 50. And I was like, all right. (laughs) I think I can do this. And so um, I made a menu that included like this cucumber salad um, that is like a Vietnamese celebration salad. I made food that I felt would be doable by regular cooks. And I and I thought to myself, this is my opportunity to really show these people my gratitude, but also let them know who I am and that this is food that isn't mysterious. Because I, you know, Asian food is mysterious to a lot of people. And mm-hmm. you know, people think that now and think of it, you know, back in 2003, think of it in 1975 when my family came over here. So uh, I did a presentation first and then um, I served people a bunch of food and it was just so fun. But the wonderful thing Matt, that I have to say to you is like getting to meet people who pick out the paper for your book yeah. and and decide on the binding. And back then, the diacritics that were used in the book had to be hand coded in because the font that tends to be yeah, MS Word didn't have diacritics exactly in the right way, right? And so all of those people had their hands on my book at some point, and it was so wonderful to be able to say thank you to them. Yeah, 
doesn't happen. I mean, doesn't happen it, anymore. It doesn't. I, I you know, I, I'm at the Penguin House building and, and our listeners know that. And and we'll have we'll see authors once in a while. And and you know, sometimes they would bring food by, but it, it, nothing like that you're explaining. And I think that's just that's a really good move. It's a real like really nice gesture, but also it's like smart. I mean, you've been at the publisher since then in 2006 and you clearly uh, made an impression with that first book. So I wanted to move on and talk about your new podcast, Everything Cookbooks. Um, and you really are creating, I believe, a document that can be used by anyone who is interested in pursuing a cookbook project. I feel like every episode is capturing one element of cookbook writing and cookbook recipe development. And I, and I love, and I'm, and I'm going to be interviewing all four of you, um, and, and throughout the, on the taste podcast, because just, I, I'm really a huge fan of all of you, of all of your books and your work, but I wanted to get a sense of, of everything cookbooks, you know, how, how did this come about? Like what inspired the the launch of everything cookbooks? Well, for a number of years, for about three or four years, um, I would monthly, on a monthly basis, get together with uh, three friends, Molly Stevens, Kate Leahy, and Kristen Donnelly. And we would talk shop. We would gossip, of course, you know, mm-hmm. but we would talk shop about our careers, questions we had about the industry. Um, and it was really fun. We would talk about one for an hour long and we would mm-hmm. meet um, before Zoom, we would use like Google chat. And one day I, I thought to myself, aren't th- these conversations we having that we're having perhaps interesting to other people? Because they were really about how to navigate the industry. And we would talk about books that we were interested in too, and authors that we admired. And so that's how we thought, well, let's just try to make this podcast and see what happens. And see, you know, who are the cookbook geeks out there? Because cookbook writing is so darn lonely, as you know, Matt. Yeah, you definitely need a community. You need a shoulder to cry on. You need some event. You maybe need a cocktail. Yeah, you're right. You need other people in your life when you're writing that book. I so agree. And so if you can, even if you have voices that whisper to you through your earbuds and say, it's going to be okay. You'll survive. (laughs) You'll thrive one day again, and it'll all be worth it. Um, That can really get you through the process and also, you know, help you launch new ideas. And we don't know where this podcast will take us. And it's just, you know, come out since March of 2022. And we're having so much fun with it. You are. I mean, it's obvious. And, and I think you are doing solo episodes. The four of you will jump in. You'll have guests. I love the format. I love the way you get nerdy about the actual publishing of cookbooks, but you also zoom out. And for anyone interested in just like recipes and recipe development and, and actually also like food, like let's not forget about the actual cooking. You offer a lot of cool insights. And I, I just love the the tone of it. And, you know, I've called it out on our, our show, the Taste Podcast, a few times, but um, I really just am so happy it's there for the future generation of cookbook writers. Yeah, because when I thought about writing cookbooks, I didn't know what to do. You know, as a refugee, uh, an immigrant in this country, my whole purpose was to have a career that was financially secure. I am the youngest of five children, and I think my parents may have gotten a little bit um, tired by the time they got to me. So they didn't put too much pressure on me to have a normal career. And I was schooled to be someone who was a banker, but I was terrible at accounting. And I didn't know quite what to do with myself. I knew that I love cookbooks and I've loved them since I was 10 years old. And my family couldn't afford the, you know, to buy books at the bookmobile that came through the school, but they sent us to the public library. And so we borrowed books. We were very curious about cooking. I read cookbooks and cookbooks back then didn't have color photos. And so I was just like trying to imagine the flavor of like rosemary and marjoram and thyme and maybe, and, you know, and chives. I had no idea what those things were, but I just kept reading glossaries over and over at the 
at the so back cool. of cookbooks. Just going to glossaries. I love that. That's such a great idea. Yeah. And I was just like this weird kid who did that. Um, while, while my brother and I would watch afternoon, um, you know, TV and after we got home and if we didn't get into fights or something like that, but I <laughs> cookbooks was were what I read. Uh, and we also took turns, my sisters and I at joining cookbook clubs and they were, they had these cool deals, three books for $10 or whatever. And then we would just rotate through and order different cookbooks. And that's how I learned about popular cookbooks in yeah. America. So I just didn't know what, what, that I could ever have the opportunity to write one. I want to transition and talk about just the actual work you do. And I, I asked this to Molly. I had Molly in the studio uh, recently. And I'm going to ask you the same. It's like, when does cooking feel like work? And when does it feel like fun? It's fun when you are discovering something new. You're working with an ingredient that you've never worked with. Sometimes it's work because you're trying to figure out a recipe. It just seems like it'll never work out. I have a particular cake recipe in an upcoming book that's coming out next April that I spent a month working on during the pandemic and also in the middle of a kitchen remodel. And so my contractor had the stove hooked up still, but it was on wheels. And so in the daytime when he when the guys were here working, they would unhook the stove and move it away. And then at night before they left, they would hook the stove up again. And so in the morning when I woke or at night after they left, sometime when they weren't in the house, I would bake a cake. <laughs> and so I would wake what up a, in the morning. What a, what a, what a, you're, at, you're creating such a, a challenge. It's like almost like you're on Top Chef when right. writing a cookbook. <laughs> it just took <laughs> like a month and I just kept working at this on this cake recipe. And finally I got to where I wanted it. And I kept giving cake to these uh, construction people until they were like, no, it's okay. Thank you very much. <laughs> what is the cake? Can you say what did the actual recipe is? It's a cake that tastes like Vietnamese coffee. Oh, right on. Oh, cool. It's very did hard you... to do. I thought it was going to be easy, but that's the thing. Yeah. So it becomes work when you think, ah, you know, you're developing a new recipe. You're like, ah, people have done this before. And... Yeah. I'll just, you know, be like maybe five, six times and I'll get through the recipe and get it to where I want. And it's like, no, 30. 30 times, 30 cakes. That's, you know, that's the type of work that makes books shine and wins you awards and, you know, makes you a multi best-selling author. You know, you got to put in the work, you got to put in the reps. Um, so with that, I have to ask you, um, do you ever get the cooking blahs? Do you ever feel blah about cooking? Yes, when I'm just really tired at the end of the day. Yeah. And I have cooked a particular recipe for an assignment or for my book. And let's say it's a condiment. You know, you're just like, I have four batches of that condiment. I just am really not in the mood to turn that into something else. And, um, but but that said, sometimes those blahs can become opportunities for you to create something new. I love that. I love that. What, like, what, what's an example of an opportunity? Like, I've, I've been working on a particular um, hot chili condiment for an article, and I had never worked with maple sugar before. And I had made it four times. And I thought to myself, you know, what is wrong with you? And the opportunity was when I figured out how to make it, I realized that I needed to use the microwave to manipulate the chilies into a way that I could then easily crumble them up and seed them and all that. And I was like, the microwave, you know, it's it seems so down market in food writing to talk about the microwave, but it saves so many of us from the the day-to-day -day work, but also in this regard, it um, enabled me to make these chilies, these dry chilies, like toast them up very lightly, puff them up, and then seeding them became very, very easy because I needed a lot for this particular recipe. So that was where it became an opportunity. And I was so tired of that recipe. And I like was would wake up in the middle of the night thinking about like, how am I going to get through this? I promised the recipe to my editor. 
Yeah, that's the anxiety. Do you, do you feel like when you're on book deadline, there's a ticking, 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 ticking clock always on you? Yes. Or a magazine deadline? Book and magazine deadline. As soon as I sign that contract, I think about the deadlines. I'm very deadline oriented. and But but during the pandemic, I have, le- I have learned that there is always wiggle room. And so I, I ask people, do we have a little wiggle room in this? You know, and deadlines are very fluid now, much more fluid than they used to be. As an editor um, with many writers, um, filing at all times, yes, you're right. It is fluid <laughs> and it's always changing. Um, if you read the pages of Taste, you see a lot of different bylines and you uh, will certainly, uh, people have different styles and they have different deadlines. But I agree, like the pandemic has made us all, you know, maybe step back and chill a little bit with like our, like, like hard deadlines and like realize there's a is wiggle room. But I feel the same way. I, I feel like there is a tick, tick, tick happening when you're on book deadline. So Yeah, you know, and I'm I've always tried to be the good student, the A student. You know, we all are we're we're geeks and and we want to perform and we want to do our best and we want to create the best product possible. So I am very deadline oriented. Sometimes though I just do have to tell myself to just not take it so seriously. We asked all guests on the Taste Podcast if there was a dream recipe project that you could work on without the burden of budget, meaning you had all the money in the world, or deadline, meaning you did not have a deadline. Andrea, what would that book be? Oh, God, Matt. You always ask like these, you know. They're almost like Barbara Walters. <laughs> Question. I am the Barbara <laughs> Walters of of food <laughs> podcasting. Yes, you are. What kind of tweet <laughs> Thank would you for I the compliment. Be? Very nice of you. <laughs> um, I would love to travel the world and trace, for example, the Vietnamese food diaspora and document that, you know, and that would take a long time. It would take a lot of resources, but that would be such a wonderful, wonderful project to do. And I would also dream that there would be many people interested in that topic so that it would financially be, you know, worthwhile to pursue. Um, And so a project like that, you know, could have multi-dimensions, not just print, but video, audio, um, all kinds of things that that could really bring a, a complex understanding of what Vietnamese food is. Where is the uh, Vietnamese diaspora located in the world where maybe our listeners and myself may not actually realize that? Is there a pocket in parts of the world that um, yeah, that, that may be formed over the past 20 years? Or Czechoslovakia. Czechoslovakia. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know, there are Vietnamese people everywhere. People write me from many, many places. I mean, you know, a lot of folks are in Australia, for example, and also France and, and of course, the United States. Um, but people have moved all over. And even years ago, the reason, one of the reasons why I wrote Asian Tofu was I got this question from my mom. She says to me, you know, honey, Mrs. So-and-so says that she has a friend who recently moved to Africa. And this friend of hers really misses Tofu. And the ladies wanted me to ask you, do you know how to make tofu? And I was like, what is Mrs. So-and-so's friend doing in Africa? And so there's like this Vietnamese person in Africa thinking about making tofu. And I had just thought about making tofu because I just wondered about making tofu. Mm -hmm. But, you know, knowing that there are people all over the world who miss tofu like that really got me to think about how important one of the most basic foods of Asia is to people, whether they're in country, you know, living in the motherland or they are traveling or living elsewhere uh, on this planet away from where they were born. Well, I can't wait to, to read that book. Andrew Nguyen, thank you for joining the Taste Podcast. Thank you so much, Matt. Hey, Bianca, what's up? Everything's good. Bianca Cruz, you're an editorial assistant at Clarkson Potter, and you're also in culinary school. I wanted to ask you on the show once, but maybe maybe a few other times, because it's like culinary school. Culinary school. You're in it. You're, this is like a second job. 
have so much respect for, but I have a million questions to ask you about it. But first, like, let's talk about what is culinary school exactly? Right. Culinary school is a very uh, detailed curriculum to ensure you have very basic um, skills and techniques that can apply to pretty much any kitchen. Um, And not every single cuisine, but, you know, basic knife skills, um, learning basic French and Italian, Spanish sauces. uh, There's just so many different things you have to learn. It's a lengthy program, um, but it makes you a really confident cook um, and eventually a very confident chef. Um, And eventually you have to work at a restaurant for a little bit. So you really get the lay of the land when you're there. And you work with some really talented chefs. Um, you meet some really talented colleagues that you eventually probably will be friends with forever. So it's a really great experience overall. Which culinary school do you attend? I go to ICE, which is the Institute of Culinary Education, and it is in lower Manhattan. ICE is a, a legendary school in New York, and many of uh, the top chefs in the area have attended ICE. And um, I just have to reiterate how impressed I am that you're doing a full-time editorial job you're rising editor here at uh, at Clarkson Potter, but you're also at night going heading downtown to go to the to school. So I, I just think I, I again I have a bunch of questions. When you walk in the doors of culinary school on day one, like what were you thinking? I was very scared. First of all, it took forever to find where the actual school was because oh, it's, nightmares. It's, yeah, it's like embedded in. Brookfield Mall, and you have to, like, find the entrance to go upstairs. Um, But then once you're there, (laughs) you just kind of look around. You're like, what am I supposed to do now? So (laughs) they're, like, directing you. They they give you this gigantic bag of everything that you need for school, um, knives, everything that you need, including your outfits, your shoes. And I was just like, this weighs 50 pounds. (laughs) I have no idea I'm going to trek this home, but I I don't know how I did. Um, They give you everything to carry it in. So they give you like a little knife bag. They give you a a book bag to put every like measuring cups, uh, scales, anything like that. Um, And you kind of start seeing people trickle in. I was the second person there. Um, The first person there was Hmm. my my friend Joel. um, And he... He's very ambitious, so I wasn't surprised. Like, now that I know him better, I, I'm not surprised he was there first. But then everyone starts to trickle in, and everyone's a little bit shy. Um, and then they escort you to your kitchen, which is a full-size kitchen. It's like a, a restaurant-size kitchen. Yeah. And you just kind of pick a, a little spot to work at, a little bench. And you just kind of put your outfit on and stand there, and the <sighs> chef tells you what to do. So it was intimidating, but I go in every day really happy and very comfortable. Yeah, it sounds like you really are engaging with the material, and we'll, I will get into what the actual work is. But look, back to that first day, what was the first lesson that you actually went through? What was the first thing they teach you in culinary school? I think it was just super basic knife skills. I think yeah. the first thing we learned was herbs. Um, tasting them, identifying them. Um, like, I don't think I ever saw tarragon in real life until that first mm-hmm. day. I don't like tarragon, but... Probably you know, why you haven't seen it. <laughs> yeah, I don't want to see yeah. it again. Um, yeah, we just learned how to cut them because they're very delicate, and we just kind of cut the hell out of herbs, um, <laughs> yeah. you know, in your regular kitchen. But you had to treat them nice and delicate because every single, like, oil within those herb counts. Um so that's basically what we learned. And I remember my chef instructor, Chef Ted, who's probably been in the industry longer than we've all been alive. Mm-hmm. Um, he, I love him very much. But he was like, I'm going to treat you guys like you don't even know how to boil water. So, wow. yeah, from the from literally square one, that's what we learned. So this begs the question, what was your background in the kitchen before you, you started culinary school? Were you an ambitious baker? Did you make dinner for your family? friends and family. What were you kind of doing in the kitchen before you started? Uh, Really all those things. You know, my mom used to cook every single meal for us. So, you know, very uh, cook heavy household. Um, And she's a great cook. My mother cooks amazing. And I've I've learned so much from her. Um, But my mom can't bake to save her (laughs) life. Um, And this is no offense to my mom, but she knows that. I think she can only make a flan and that's about it. Um, but I was kind of ambitious in the in the sense that I wanted to learn how to how to bake. And I remember the first thing I ever baked was Tasty's um, cinnamon roll that went like super viral. Yeah, I want to say like ten years ago, um, and it came out really good. And I was like, wow, I can I can bake. It's not that hard. 
So I just continued from then on. And I think like the next thing I made was like Ina Garden's berry cheesecake, um, which I saw on the Food Network. And I was like, I need to make that like immediately. So um, I took a lot of inspo from all these different food outlets and I would probably bake at least once a week, um, you know, whatever I saw on the Internet or whatever I saw on the Food Network. And eventually that just kind of turned into like this huge passion. And I love like one of my idols is Claire Staffitz. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't say pastry is like my forte, but I really love doing it. So, yeah. Claire, you mentioned yeah. some great authors there. Some of the authors are, are actually authors that you work with. Yeah. <laughs> at Clerks and Potter. So what a cool way to what a what a great job to, to work with some of these authors that you actually bake from and. Uh, more more about culinary school, you're progressing through the units and you, you come to something where I, I think as, uh, as somebody who went to college and still have nightmares about it is you had tests and exams. I would like to know what is a culinary school exam like? What, what, do, what do they ask you to do to kind of pass units? There's two different types of culinary exams. There's your written, which it's kind of annoying, but it kind of is what it is. They ask you to like, kind of memorize recipes sometimes. What? They ask yeah. you like me- like like Socratic method style. They um, like call on you and say like, do you make like how do you how does this recipe work? No, it's more so. It's just um, you just write it down on paper. Oh my gosh! Which is kind of I have a benefit because I basically read recipes all day. Sure, sure. Um, so <laughs> it wasn't super hard, um, but besides that, you kind of have some like multiple choice questions like you know, where does this cuisine originate or something like that? It's nothing super complicated, but it does take a lot of memorization and paying attention to the lectures at the beginning of the class. And then there's a practical examination, which is where you actually cook for the chef and you present whatever it is that you're required to cook. And the most recent exam that I, um, that I did was for, was for world cuisine. I really don't like to say world cuisine because we just really learn French and Italian cuisine. And then like <laughs> right. we had like two weeks of Asian cuisine. Yeah. So they like mashed everything everything together. And I get you can't teach everything, you right. know, within a year, but um, I wouldn't have called it world cuisine. Anyway. Yeah. I'll, yeah. I'll the naming convention is maybe a little dated. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. it's pretty dated, yeah. but um it, it was very insightful. I mean, my partner's Italian, so it was kind of nice learning some of those um those traditional Italian dishes so I can bring them to his family later, which sure. is great. But besides that, the practical examination consists of the most recent one was you had to make a chicken supreme. So you had to actually butcher the chicken and present the butchered chicken to the chef and he would rate it. And I only say he because that was my chef was a he. Yeah. Um, So, yeah, you present your chicken and then with the breast, you also have to make a, uh, a pan sauce. You also have to make a vegetable side and a potato side. So, and then you have to make sure you serve it hot. Oh, wow. You, you get points off for that. My goodness. Um, and I was like, that's not even a requirement on like chopped. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> well, yeah, this is the big leagues. This yeah. is like, this is, and, and I guess serving hot food is probably pretty important in a restaurant setting. Oh, yeah. That's exactly, <laughs> that's exactly the goal. But you, you're basically making everything by yourself and you have to mise en place everything. And it's, it's very intimidating. But I surprisingly was done first. Um, I was like really strategic in everything that I did and made. I made a, like I said, a regular chicken supreme with mm-hmm. uh, pan gravy, um, mashed potatoes, and French style Harry Colbert. So my chef said, keep it stupid simple. Yeah. I kept it stupid simple and I got a 92. So it was Well, pretty, there you go. Yeah, I was pretty, was pretty happy Bianca, with that. Bianca, amazing 92. That's A work right yeah. there. Yeah. <laughs> um, what was the most difficult task you've been asked to accomplish in your, in your, and this is your first year at culinary school, right? Yeah. Yeah. What was been the most difficult thing? Uh, sauces. Sauces yeah. are the hardest thing. I'm, and I mean, in the lecture, they essentially say that, you know, bef- in the before times when, hmm. Uh, not COVID before times, but in like the restaurant before times where, you know, we have things to order now where it's like, I want this, I want a slice of pizza. So they make you a slice of pizza. It's not the same. They used to make everything kind of at once um, back in like the French days. But it's really interesting because there used to be a sauce chef just for sauces. Yeah, It was like thinking about it is insane because you have to have a really refined palate. And that chef was the most respected chef in the kitchen. So you could imagine how every chef kind of has trouble with sauces. But there's that one person that probably didn't, and they're the most successful one. I don't know if sauce chefs exist today. I'm sure they're somewhere. <laughs> yeah, in like classic chef. French or Italian yeah. restaurants, I'm sure they have them. So are we talking about some of the classic mother sauces that you're yeah, making? Yeah, don't even ask me because I— Yeah. 
I, I have PTSD from <laughs> from that that those lessons. Like so many of my sauces broke. Yeah. Um, so many of them just didn't come out right or were too salty or were too acidic. And um, although I'd, I could taste them relatively well, I just couldn't execute them the way yeah. that I would like to. So they're also just a lot of work. Um, they're, they can take hours to make because they all – come from stocks like almost all of them come from stock so you have to start from square one by making a stock yeah roasting bones roasting yep. mirepoix all yep. that stuff yeah. all that stuff and it's it's frustrating so if you just get that wrong you have to start all over again so it's not my it wasn't my favorite thing to do um but i'm i am happy that i learned it yeah obviously. it's important and and let me ask you the flip side did you find anything naturally pretty easy for you that you just thought oh wow this is actually pretty pretty easy i love making proteins um yeah they're just – I used to be terrified of making, like, a steak. I was like, I have no idea what I'm doing here. Um, <laughs> the club. Wow. Steaks yeah. are intimidating. And Chef Jason, who I really also loved, taught us all, you know, everything we know about protein. And I have not made a dry chicken since. So it's really – I mean, my thermometer is probably my sidekick in the kitchen. Um, I rely on it for pretty much everything. And I know more seasoned and trained chefs can just kind of do it by temperature, but mm-hmm. that's not me yet. Um, but yeah, that's that's something I found really, it just came to me organically. Um, even butchering um, protein was super easy and it came to me organically. Nice. Um, but it was still challenging. Um, nonetheless, I feel like I got it pretty quick. Had they ta- taught you the this cake tester method for testing meat? They did. I, that's what, that's, I mean, if a chef comes into the kitchen and is like, you're not sure if it's something is done yet. They'll tell you like they'll just put it in and they'll put it on their palm and they'll be like, oh, nope, not ready yet. Yeah. I can't I, do that. <laughs> so it's you You pop a t- cake tester into a steak, a ribeye, and I, palm or I've, I've heard it where it's under your lip actually. Really? I, you see and it's like a very sensitive place and if it scalds, you obviously have overcooked your meat. Yeah. Um, what Are there any other like mind-expanding hacks that you've found uh, have come your way in culinary school? Like, wow, I can't believe that you can actually do it this way. Um, I, this is not necessarily a hack. This is, I find out information that's like, oh my God, (laughs) why didn't I know this? I guess one of them would be like, um, you know, why people have issues digesting beans. And you're like, oh, because you aren't used to eating beans. I grew up in a household that ate beans every day. Um, and I never understood why other people had issues eating beans. I was like, is it like something weird with them? But you learn in school, you're like, oh, it's because they just can't digest yeah. them. And you also really learn a lot about like the science of flowers. Like I'm in pastry right now and you just learn about the proteins and the gluten and everything like that. Like there's so much science involved um, that you just – you kind of have to go out of your way to learn, and it's just something that's required for you to know in culinary school. Like, sure, you're baking a cake. Who cares about, like, you know, what type of flour you're using? You're just following the recipe. But it's, like, a lot of it is, like, why? Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of culinary schools, why are you doing this like that? And it's a great question. Like, no matter what you're doing in school, you say, hey, chef, why are you doing it like that? Or why? what's the reason for it's using cool. that technique or method? And they almost always have an answer. So it's a really fascinating. Like I don't, I can't think of a hack off the top of my head. Um, yeah, I told you about like the artichoke thing um, when we were talking a little while back with. Um, yeah, explain that. that. I love that. I love that so much. Yeah, they are. So when you make artichokes, the recipes typically require you to use lemon um, or some type of acid, and yeah. it's to prevent the browning and the oxidation of of the um, the artichoke. But also, you have to use anything that's stainless steel. You can't use like cast iron or nonstick, you want to use something at stainless steel because it can endure the acid um, yeah. from the lemon. Um, and it can really, like I said, can really help slow down the oxidation, excuse me, the oxidation of the yeah. uh, artichoke. So that's just something I didn't know. I was like, I just thought it was for flavor. It technically stainless is. steel pans <laughs> you find in restaurant kitchens because of this exact point. And yeah. nonsticks are sometimes more of the home kitchens, right? Yeah. And even then, I think the only time I intentionally used a nonstick was to make French omelets. And I make French omelets almost every morning. Yeah, they're they're a little finicky, but once you you learn how to make them, they're they're amazing. I know Molly Bass is a great recipe for that. Um, I can't imagine um, cooking a French omelet in anything but nonstick. Yeah, I feel like you're you're really you're you're asking for some pain and suffering if you're doing it in a stainless. Agreed. And they made sure that we learned that um, yeah. in class. They're like, you try using a stainless steel. Let me know how it turns out. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then I remember the chef being like. 
Oh, someone asked, like, when are we going to make scrambled eggs? He goes, mess up your first French omelet, and that's a scrambled that's egg. Your, there you go. <laughs> who are your fellow students like? Are they are they folks like yours, yourself, who are, who have a, another career and are doing it for enrichment, uh, career development, or are there are your co- colleagues? Fellow students, are they are they looking to be chefs and work in restaurants full time? Yeah, I think everyone has a little bit of a different outlook or goal um, from culinary school. Mm-hmm. A lot of my friends are in culinary school are all transitioning into a culinary career. Almost all of them, I believe, except for the like one, maybe two or three people. Um, but even then, they they're not in fine dining establishments. They're either servers or they're line mm-hmm. cooks or something, and they're looking to elevate themselves in the kitchen. Uh, and then there's people like me who have day jobs who, you know, even though with me, I still am culinary adjacent. Uh, there's people who work, you know, regular business jobs. Like one of my friends is a paramedic. One of them is a bus driver. Yeah. And it's really fascinating to see them just completely transition into a completely new career. And I think um, the pandemic was really a big thing for people where they were like, you know, what am I doing with my life? And they just went for their dreams and their amazing. goals, which I think is amazing. And two of my closest friends have day jobs. And one of them, one of them is Julian, who wants to open up a restaurant, which is amazing. And I think he's more than capable of that. He's yeah. so smart. He even went to an Ivy League. Yeah. And he's in culinary school now. I was like, that's, <laughs> um, that's incredible. Yeah. Um, and then there's Kyle, who is like Bobby Flay's biggest fan. Sure. And he's like, I want to work for Bobby Flay. Like that's his end goal. And I was like, that's incredible. Let's let's make it happen. And you yourself have, have big plans too. You know, you're working on the editorial side and you're going to start acquiring books, it sounds like. Yeah, I'm more than excited to, I mean, I kind of am honing in my vision as to what books I would like to yeah. acquire. Every editor has their own kind of thing. I think um, one of my bosses, Raquel, is really good at taking books that may not have the best vision and really honing it in for that um, for that author or writer. She's yeah. great at that. Um, Jen has some really my other boss. Jen has some really incredible titles that um, that need to just kind of be built. Like she takes these authors so ahead of time, like Molly Baz, who grew into this like icon, you know. But Jen kind of acquired her early. She saw a lot of potential in her, um, and a bunch of all the other authors like Don Angie. Mm-hmm. She acquired that book and she was like, let's make a Don Angie cookbook. And it's an incredible book. And Scott and Angie are incredible people. So Jen is just so good at, you know, eyeing talent. It's yeah. really awesome. And then there's, there's Francis. I don't have to say anything about <laughs> Francis. Um, you know, he, I think he just was nominated for a James Beard. Yeah. So, you know, I work with some incredible colleagues, both in culinary school and at Potter. And yeah. I'm really shout grateful. out to Francis Lamb, yeah. <laughs> Jen Sitt, and Raquel Pelzel, editorial staff at Clarkson Potter, and Bianca Cruz, you're on staff as well. Yeah. Um, will you come back later in the summer and and can we talk about your next kind of phase in culinary school, pastry? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I know you're, you're starting pastry, right? Yeah, we are about three weeks into pastry. And it's like so funny because we have, we've had like three pastry chefs so far. And it's a lot of like weird scheduling stuff. Yeah. And then it turns out our pastry chef is leaving. Oh, no. Um, chef Alon, who is near and dear to me, even though we've only had him for like three weeks. Um, and he's going to be like the head of a restaurant. So it's well, like, you know, good for you. That's how it goes in the, in the restaurant business. Bianca yeah. Cruz, come back in the summer and let's talk more pastry. Let's talk more culinary school. Yeah, I'm excited to tell you. I, I'm sure I'll be almost done by the time we chat well, next. So we'll talk then. Thank you for joining yeah. the Taste Podcast. Yeah, thank you so much. The Taste Podcast is hosted by me, Matt Rodbard. It's produced by Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumber. Theme music by Steve Rydell. Visit Taste Online at tastecooking.com and make sure to subscribe to our newsletter. Thanks for listening.